0: We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Well, good morning, Covenant.
1: It's good to see you again. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving we, uh, we went to Mississippi and we spent it with Catherine's parents and had a great time out there and uh, ate too much, but that's all right. We, uh, we made up for it in the next couple of days and didn't eat as much, so it all balances out in the end, right? That's how that works. So, you know, uh, one of my first uh, memories of this passage was a sermon that I heard, I was probably in Kenya, I mean, this was probably around 1970. And I remember it because, uh, for a couple of reasons really, one was the illustration that the pastor gave uh, to help explain the idea of the old man, uh, in the King James Version, it was the old man has died, or the old self has died, you know, and being crucified with Christ. And I remember it stuck in my head because the pastor used an illustration that involved Indians as in American Indians, and I was a child, and I was all about cowboys and Indians. And so the minute he gave an illustration to explain that concept of the old man dying, and he used an Indian, and it was 1970, and he did it in Indian voice, which you wouldn't do in 2019, but I perked up, right, as a little child. And I remember that illustration explaining this concept of how the old man has died to sin about this Indian, right, who explains that within him there were two dogs. There was a black dog and a white dog. And these two dogs were always fighting with one another. And what he saw was that if he fed the white dog, then the white dog would just tear into and wear out that black dog. But if he fed the black dog, the black dog would tear into and wear out the white dog. And, of course, the pastor would then go on to exhort us to feed the white dog so that, of course, we could have victory over sin, right? still remember that illustration and that story to this day. That was one reason why I remember. I also remember it for a second reason, because as a little child, in my literal mind and my literal head, I reached up to my mom, and in an inappropriately loud young voice, as children will do, right, parents, I tugged on her shoulder and on her arm until she paid attention to me, and I said, but mom 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 how do you feed a dead black dog (laughs) good question right the black dog is dead how do you feed it you you know that began for me a kind of a love-hate relationship with romans chapter 6 It was confusing. It was confusing to me as a child. It became confusing to me as a teen. It became confusing to me as a a freshman in college as I went off and worked in a ministry with a man who Romans chapter 7, a very godly man, and Romans 6 was central to his Christian life and his understanding of living for God and being victorious and being filled with the Holy Spirit. But the way he he explained Romans 6 confused me even more. And I stayed confused about elements of Romans chapter 6 through seminary, through classes that were devoted to the, to the book of Romans, right? Commentaries. Listen to sermons by John MacArthur. He helped a little, but even he confused me. I mean, confusion abounded. Now, now the good news is, is that while there is lots of confusion in, among scholars about different elements that we are going to look at over the next few weeks in Romans 6. We're going to be in Romans 6 for at least three weeks. So just settle in, okay? All right. Uh, There's a lot of difference in uh, opinions on different elements of Romans 6 where there is unanimity and there's absolute agreement is the importance of this chapter. You see, Paul, so far, has been laying out the gospel for us and has been zeroing in on this idea of justification, our justification before God. But here in chapter 6, right, he's focusing on sanctification. Justification is important, right, because this is where God has declared us righteous by his grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But listen, that declared righteousness is supposed to become more and more a reality of our everyday lives as we live in this broken world and we walk in this life. And so within this chapter that is... Dealing with sanctification, where Paul is now shifting attention from justification to now how does this express itself, our justification express itself in our normal life, what we would call sanctification. This opening passage, in fact, verse 2. Verse 2 has been called by several uh, scholars and different leading lights as the most important, or at least among the most important verses in the Bible dealing with our struggle with sin and our victory over sin and and our power and and tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 2. This idea of being dead to sin, which is the title of the message Simply put, if we're, gonna, if we're going to live victorious Christian lives, if we're going to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and we're going to see victory over sin in our lives, we cannot have a love-hate relationship with Romans 6. We can't have confusion about these initial verses and what Paul is teaching here. We've got to understand this, this fundamental truth that's in the opening of this chapter. Okay? And this is where we're going to park this morning, that sin remains in us, but it no longer reigns in us once we are united to Christ. Sin remains in us, but it no longer remains in us. Excuse me, sin remains in us, but it no longer reigns in us. Boy, that's a mistake to reverse those words, okay, just for the record. Uh, Sin remains in us, but it no longer reigns in us once we are united to Christ. So we're going to unpack this truth this morning with three questions, and for those of you who like to take notes, we're going to ask these three questions and answer them, and this provides you with an outline, okay? And so the first question comes from verses one and two. What does it mean to be dead to sin? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is opening up this passage with some questions that he knows needs to be asked because no doubt he's been he's been faced with these accusations as he has proclaimed the gospel of grace throughout the mediterranean world you see this goes back to chapter 5 in verse 20 where he says now that law came in to increase the trespass but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more and so is going to happen in some, a teaching like this, and in fact, it even occurs today, and it's happened to me. If you proclaim the gospel of grace in all of its entirety, sooner or later, you're going to be accused of endorsing sin. And, and the thinking goes like this. Some people take this truth and they, they abuse it. They say, well, listen, if, if what you're saying is that God's grace shows up where sin is, Right, So there's sin and now God gives his grace and God is glorified by giving his grace to sinners. What we need to do is what? Exactly, sin more, so God will give more grace and God will be more glorified. How's that work for human rationalization, right? This is called antinomianism and and this has actually been a problem within the church through the centuries. It was a problem in Paul's day. It's a problem. You know, hey, it, it was a problem even. We, we experienced in our own church a few years back, an elder and I. We sat at a table with a spouse who had, had violated the wedding vows, had cheated on uh, the mate, and had the thought of just thinking about leaving permanently, divorcing. And as we sat with that spouse, that elder and I, and we pleaded with this person to repent, that, that the, the other spouse was willing to reconcile and go through counseling, this person looked us in the eye and said, well, well let, let me talk to you about this. So let me just think, let's think about this. If I go ahead and I go through with this and I leave my spouse... and and I go ahead and I marry this other person and I know that it's wrong, I know it's adultery, I know that I've committed adultery and I know I don't have grounds for divorce, but if I go ahead and I do this, but then I confess it as sin and I ask God to forgive me, he has to forgive me, right? See, that's just another form of this, what he's getting at here. That, That person didn't understand grace at all. Not at all. Okay. Are we to continue in sin so grace can abound? Verse two, by no means. in, In Southern speak, Paul would have said, Are you out of your cotton picking mind? That's what he's saying here. Are you nuts? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? There's our question, right? What does it mean to be dead to sin? What does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, you know, sometimes in understanding what something means, it's important to know what it does not mean. So for example, I told you I had a lot of confusion about this chapter. One reason is I had a grandmother. I used to go to her church. She was a different uh, uh, spiritual heritage and denomination and, and they taught from this passage, for example, that not only were you dead to, dead to sin, it was literal. You, in time, the power of sin was eradicated in our lives so that if you understood this and appropriated it by faith, you would not sin anymore. Sinless perfectionism is what it's called, okay? Uh, can I just say, church, this passage is not teaching sinless perfectionism. <laughs> it's not teaching that at all. Um, it also doesn't mean that we are in the process of dying to sin daily. You know the old white dog, black dog thing. You know that you know we some days we do better against sin and some days we don't do. It's, it's not teaching that either. That's that's a true concept that we have those kinds of days and that kind of success and failure. But and that's in the other passages of Scripture, but not here. And the reason why is because of the tense of the verb. The tense of the verb dead here, just like in our English language, we have past, present, and future tenses. The Greek has several different tenses. And the tense for dead here is what is known as the aorist tense. And the aorist tense means an action that was done in the past. It is done and it is accomplished. Benito. Okay? So this is not talking about some process of daily dying to sin. It's not talking about us dying to sin's guilt you know that we are now dead to the guilt of sin it's true that we no longer are uh, we're no longer responsible we, we we are dead to the guilt of sin but that's justification and this is not talking about justification even though there's some great mind dr john, john Scott believes this is actually just still talking about justification and no that's not what it's at at all Okay, so what does it mean to be dead to sin? I don't want you to be confused, church. So I'm tried, I've given you a simple way of remembering this. And so if you're a child, I don't want you going through 30 years of confusion, okay? So Pastor Jerry's giving you a sentence, and I want you to read this sentence with me, children, and, and big children too, okay? We're going to all read this, and we're going to read it more than once because I want you to lock this in. What does it mean to be dead to sin? Let's read it out loud together. Ready? Here we go. Sin remains in us, but it no longer reigns in us. One more time. Sin remains in us, but it no longer reigns in us. Okay, a couple of you weren't quite awake, so one more time. Ready? Sin remains in us, but it no longer reigns in us. Very, very good. In other words, God has broken the absolute power and dominion of the sin nature in our lives. When Paul is talking about sin here, he's not talking about the the individual violations of God's law, like children, you disobeying your parents, or, or, or us saying things that we should not say. He's not talking about individual sinful acts. He's talking about the sin nature. That is what he's referring to here in these verses. Okay, And what he's saying is that God has broken this dominion of the sin nature. We're no longer under the absolute dominance and the all-consuming power of sin. He's teaching us that the sin nature is no longer that tyrannical dictator to whom we must always listen and obey and serve. It's no longer the driving force in our lives that resists God and makes it so that we cannot love God and we cannot listen to God, that we cannot serve Him or please Him and obey Him. That masterful power. And that absolute dominance is now broken. Okay, Tyrannical dictatorship done once and for all. That's what it means to be dead to sin. Now, second question. What's the basis for saying that? And that's an important question because all of us still sin. Okay, wait a second. Uh, It doesn't always feel like that this power is broken in my life. You're saying it is. So what's the basis for concluding that we are dead to sin? This is verses three to five. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, when people hear the word baptism, they automatically think of water and the sacrament that we maybe see, but that misses the point here. It misses it completely, I think. Now again, this is one of those points that are, man, there's books and pages and pages written and disagreements about. But even the people who say this is referring to our water baptism still have to admit that it's not the water baptism that's really going on here. It's what the water baptism points to. And so I think that they're just kind of, you know, they ultimately are maybe getting at it, but they're just missing the point here, okay? What's going on here is that baptism is our baptism into Christ that he's talking about. This is that spiritual act where the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ and to the body of Christ when we believe and we trust in Jesus at salvation. This is that baptism of the Holy Spirit, It is so vital and important. Without it, we don't belong to the family of God. Water baptism, whether it's administered to us when we're a baby or maybe later after we actually believe in Jesus Christ, water baptism is nothing more than the the shadow that points to the reality of that important inner Holy Spirit baptism that unites us to the body of Christ and to Jesus Christ himself. And so when he talks about, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is what he's getting at. And that word baptism is important because there's different words for baptism in the Bible. There's simpler words like bapto, right? which is like to, to dip or to immerse or, or different things like that. But he uses a much more, a comp, more complicated Greek word. And it's baptizo, and when it's used in this kind of a spiritual and metaphorical sense in this chapter, it's speaking to something much more important. It's speaking to the nature of something or someone being radically, thoroughly, permanently changed because of an overwhelming, immersive experience, okay? Okay. In other words, you were baptized. He says you were baptized. In other words, your character was thoroughly, radically, permanently changed because of an immersive, overwhelming experience. What was that experience? That's what we're getting at here. It was that, that experience of being united to Jesus Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He uses this same concept in other places, Paul does, in in, in 1 Corinthians, for example. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized, baptizoed, as followers of Moses. You know the story there, right? This is where the Israelites were led out of slavery, where they were under the rule of Pharaoh, and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, and they came out the other side. And of course, we know what happened, right? Uh, the, The soldiers of Pharaoh come through, they were immersed in water, weren't they? The water came down and crushed them they drowned the 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 israelites were not actually baptized with water they were baptized with moses in other words they went through such an immersive experience an overwhelming experience that they were now when they came out the other side no longer identified with the slavery of egypt and pharaoh from that point on they were identified with whom moses And that's what we've got to understand here, that when we talk about being baptized into Christ Jesus, the fundamental meaning here is that we are now identified with Jesus. That is the underlying truth that now we stand in solidarity with Jesus. We, we lock arms with Jesus. We're joined with Jesus. We are now, and here's the important word. You ought to write this down if you're taking notes. We are in union with Christ. We are in union with Christ. This idea is so important. And I'm going to show you some verses in just a moment where Paul talks about this continually to almost all of his churches. Right? Before the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we were in union with the first Adam and the sin nature, right? And then when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, we're now in union with the second Adam, Jesus Christ. This is, this is what the whole second half of chapter 5 taught us, what, what Scott preached about last week. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's taking this idea of union. We were with, united with Adam, now we're united with Christ. It was in the end of chapter 5, and he's putting a bow on it for us. And he's helping us to understand this is where the rubber meets the road in our everyday life. We've been united with Jesus Christ. So in our union with Jesus, God has decreed that Jesus' life is our life. That Jesus' death is our death. That Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection. And this truth is so important within the gospel, and within the teaching of the church, that Paul will repeat this to the Corinthians in both 1 and 2 Corinthians. He'll repeat it to the Thessalonians, to the Philippians, to the Galatians, several of his churches. So, For example, 2 Corinthians. For the love of Christ controls us, it compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And to the Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says in chapter 3, verse 27, a great verse, for as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on christ you see the 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 use of metaphorical language here those of you who were baptized into christ you've been united with christ it's like you have put on the uniform of jesus the clothes you've been clothed with christ you wear christ around like a uniform now that's what identifies you the uniform of christ identifies you this is your identity You've been united with Christ. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, and then as if to intensify what he's getting at, verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You know what's interesting? You go to 10 books on commentaries on this chapter, and almost all of them will skip this idea about being buried with Christ. They'll ask skip "What? The? You know why? What does that mean? Now some, you know, might say, well, this means that we should be, you know, immersed. And if he's talking about being immersed in form and it, those who want to t- and take this as a a mechanistic form of baptism? No. I, I would suggest to you, this, again, this is a, a spiritual understanding of baptism, and he's, and he's referring to burial for a reason. And those of you who've lost loved ones, you'll get this. That what he's really doing here is he's intensifying for us how permanent this break with sin and the sin, the sin nature really is. You know, when you lose a loved one, they die, and you have them with you in and, and the day's immediately after their death and you prepare for the service and everything else that goes on and there's some grieving that happens obviously but there is a sense that in a way that they, they are still with you and, and especially if you have a service and, and you're going to bury them um, you see them again and, uh, you, you look and you look and, and you'll even say, boy, oh, they sure do look, they look good. He'll say these kinds of things at the service and, and you carry on like this. But then there's this portion where you go to the cemetery. And, and when you, that portion of the celebration of life, when you put them in the ground, right? It's interesting when you put the person in the ground, how often when the dirt begins to be put onto that casket, how many times I have seen families that have been completely composed throughout a funeral and throughout the time. When that dirt begins to hit the casket, the family at that point breaks down. Why? Because that's the time when you finally realize this is done. There's no coming back from this. It's over. And that's what's going on here, right? There's a finality that he's getting at. Why do I say that the, that we are, that the sin remains in us, but it no longer reigns? It has been buried. <laughs> it is dead, right? The sin nature is dead to us and it has been put into ground. And when you go try to go back, it's like trying to go back and dig up a dead body. It makes no sense. Why would you ever think that you can continue in sin to do that? You might as well go dig up a dead body. It's dead to you. We've been buried with Christ. This union with Christ, church. So important. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We share in his death, <clears throat> we share in his burial, we share in his resurrection. And this resurrection is important because it means that the eternal life that he now possesses is our possession. This quality of newness of life that Jesus now has is our possession. And the promise is, is that we have this kind of life and it will begin to progressively reveal itself and unveil itself in our lives as we walk in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are dead to sin, and the basis of it all is because God in his mercy before the foundations of the world, he united us to Jesus Christ. And then at a point in time, positionally, it happened. We died with Christ when Christ died. And that became an actual reality in our life when the Holy Spirit entered and he gave us a new heart and we believed in Jesus and it was appropriated for us what was done and completed on the cross in Jesus 2,000 years ago. And this is real. Real. And the power of sin has been broken. It is real. And that leads us to the third question. The most important question, perhaps, as we finish this out. So what? (laughs) So what? What's the practical implications of this? How does this make any difference in our life tomorrow? What's the practical applications for being dead to sin? This is this is him. I mean, what we just talked about is hugely important to understand. But now what difference is it going to make in your marriage, in your parenting, at the job site, with your neighbors? I want to suggest a few of them to you based off the remaining verses. First one, I love it. Your old self is dead and there's no going back to who you used to be. I almost want to sing, sing that old song. Hit the road, Jack. Don't come back no more, no more. <laughs> right? Your old self is dead and there's no going back to who you used to be. Verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> the old self, the old man... And those of you who learned this verse, maybe as a kid, like I did, as the old man, again, this is not talking about the sin nature, okay? This is the old self, the old man, right? Has been crucified, heiress tense, again, important, completed, done, finitoed in the past, right? The old self is who you were before Christ. The old man is who you were before Christ. That old self, it was that person who was constantly listening to that sinful nature. And that old self, he ain't coming back anymore. He's done. The old has passed away. The new has come. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And where there was slavery, there's now freedom the old's gone, all that we were before Christ, that person that we were, all of our love of sin, our worship of self, our delight in in just corruption, our contempt for God, our idolatry, our inability to not sin, right? Right? Our inability to live for God, our inability to love God, our inability to serve God, all of that gone, dead, crucified. Think Romans chapter 3. Remember Romans chapter 3? Those verses that talked about the person who has not been regenerated by the grace of God. Remember those verses? Romans chapter 3 verse 10. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. No one who does good. No, not one. The poison of snakes upon their lead. Remember all those horrific verses? They described us before Christ. That's the old self. It's gone and it's not coming back anymore never again it cannot happen if you're in christ if you're in christ you can never go back to being that person ever again never god made you into this new creation and everyone that god has given to jesus christ will come to jesus The one who has begun this perfect and good thing in you, he will complete it. And to the very end, this grace that he gave you through justification is the same grace that is working in us for our sanctification. And he's going to complete it. So this week when you sin, and you will sin this week, I want you to remember that you are not the person that you used to be. You will never go back to being that person that you used to be. You're not going to continue to stay the person that you are right now, because God has a future for you that is glorious and beautiful, and he is going to bring it about. This is why this passage is so important. It helps us to stop beating ourselves up when we fail, It helps us to trust in the grace and the goodness of our heavenly father who is going to bring us across the finish line because he's the one who has begun this work in us and he is going to complete it. Listen, the only way a Christian ever goes back and becomes the person that they used to be was because they were never a Christian in the first place. Once you've been united with Jesus Christ, you never get divided from him ever again. Never. Everyone, Jesus says, that the Father gives me will come to me and I will not lose one, he says. Christian, if you've been united in Jesus Christ on your very worst day, The love of God for you does not waver one single iota. Not a bit. Amen. Our old self was crucified with Christ. Not coming back. Here's the next implication your new self can be victorious over sin, it can be victorious over sin. For one who has died, verse 7 says, has been set free from sin. The old self was enslaved to sin, not the new self. The new self is no longer enslaved to that sin nature. We've been given a new nature, a new heart. We have the Holy Spirit living within this. Before in the old self, we were unable to reject sin. We could not help it. But now in our new self, we reject sin. We're able to do this. You know, maybe the best illustration. I've heard a lot of bad ones. You know, black dogs, white dogs, and all kinds of illustrations. But the best illustration that I've heard, that I heard probably 13 years ago, that helped me so much, came from Randy Pope. And, uh, and by the way, Randy's going to be here in January. We're going we're to uh, preach Romans chapter 8 together. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 for quite a few weeks. And that's maybe Randy's favorite chapter. So when he heard that we were going to, he goes, he, I think he wanted to do like all six messages. I wouldn't let him do all six, but uh, whatever. But we're going to have a great time when he comes. But Randy gives the best illustration of what's happened here for us, folks. And I want you to get this. I think I'll just close with this, okay? Um, imagine that you're on a boat. You're a sailor on a boat, right? And on this boat, it's captained by the meanest, most evil, dictatorial, tyrannical captain that you can ever imagine. Those of you who've seen Mutiny on the Bounty, you remember the captain, what's his name? Captain Bly, I think his name was. It's Captain Bly on steroids, right? And I mean, he just beats you and abuses you and makes you do all kinds of horrific things. And you know, every time you're swab the deck with this toothbrush, you know, and you snap to it, and he, and then just horrible, horrible man mistreats you and mistreats everyone else. But finally, an officer steps forward and he overthrows that evil captain, and he becomes the captain of that boat. And he he puts the, the, the captain under, you know, kind of ship arrest. And he says, when we get to port, he's going to prison. He's going to be out of our lives forever. For now, I'm your captain. He's no longer the captain. One day, you're out walking around, you're doing your things, and you're enjoying life. The whole attitude and disposition of the ship has changed because you have a a new captain, and the old evil captain is no longer in charge and power. One day, you're out on the deck, you're enjoying the sunshine and the wind, and the old evil captain walks by, and he snaps, at you swab the deck, and what do you do? Smack to the deck, and you start scrubbing away, and you go right back to what you were doing, Right? And the new captain walks by and says, what are you doing? I'm swabbing the deck, sir. Why are you swabbing the deck? I didn't tell you to swab the deck. Well, well yeah, but uh, uh, Captain Bly, he told me to swab. He has no power over you. He has no authority over you. He can scream at you all he wants to. You don't have to do a thing he tells you. He's not your captain. Any." more. I'm your captain. Now get up off the deck. Church, that's what's going on inside of us. We still have that sin nature, but we have a new self, and we have a new nature, and we have Christ within us. He's our captain, okay? And there are going to be times, and it will happen regularly, where that old captain, he will shout at us, and he will scream at us, swab the deck, and we have the right and the authority under our new captain to say, stick it in your ear. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. May we experience that freedom and that victory this week over sin. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us this new heart, this new nature, that the old things have passed away, that old self will not come back anymore. But Lord, we know that this new is housed in an old vessel. We know that we will struggle with this sin nature until you fully redeem us. We know that we have the temptations of not only this flesh, but also of the devil and of this world that we live in. And so we ask that you help us to grow in this grace of sanctification, that we will understand this freedom that we have, this power that we have. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace that we need, that when we do fail, and when we do listen to that power that's been broken in us, when we deny our new identity that we have in you, Lord Jesus, and we resist who we now are in you, uh, Lord, would you give us the grace that we need to recognize this, to, to confess it, Lord, to forgive ourselves for our own failures as you have forgiven us and to to return to the peace and to the joy that your salvation brings. God, would you grow us up into a people that are characterized by a joyful, joyful holiness, a winsome goodness, a spirit-filled life, that manifests your love to this community that Brian spoke and prayed for that needs peace so badly. Lord, we walk in a broken world and we ourselves are still broken, even though you are restoring us. Would you restore us? Would you come quickly, Lord Jesus, and restore this broken world? In your name we pray these things. Amen.